This episode is brought to you by Morty, Buzzshot, Cogs, and Patreon supporters like you. Cogs by Clockwork Dog is an easy-to-use platform for running interactive events, specializing in escape rooms. They have plug-and-play hardware that seamlessly integrates with their software, so you can create a show with lighting and sound cues, all without having to write a single line of code. Map different kinds of inputs and outputs by building up simple logic steps which determine what you want to happen and when. Their newest product, COGS5, will allow ZigBee connections, powering smart bulbs, buttons, and switches, as well as MIDI keyboards. It'll give you remote connectivity over LAN or the internet, and now they're also integrating with BuzzShot, our other sponsor, letting you integrate the player's info into the game or automatically updating leaderboards. The COG starter set is normally valued at $257, but our listeners can get the starter set today for only $130 with free shipping to the U.S. You can learn more and purchase your COGS starter set at COGS.show. Use code REPOD at checkout. That's R-E-P-O-D. Link and details in the show notes. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Rich Bragg. He is the founder of the Top Escape Room Project, better known as Terpica, and co-founder of Cluekeeper, a platform for creating and playing location-based clue hunts. Rich has played more than 1,000 escape rooms in over 300 puzzle hunts. He has four top 10 finishes in international escape room competitions, and his team formerly held the Guinness World Record for the most escape rooms played in one day. Welcome, Rich. Hi, very thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I feel a little bit like a fish out of water here because I'm more of a consumer than a creator in this space, I would say, but uh, I'm still very happy to chat with you guys. <laughs> you are a creator in the space. Just looking at Clue Keeper, which has enabled so many different puzzle hunts, and also Terpica, which I think really is a foundational piece of the international escape room community. You are making things in this space, even if they aren't traditional experiences. And so we are thrilled to have you here. You very much belong. Thank you so much. (laughs) Now, have we established the correct pronunciation for Terpica? Because I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. Sure. I was absolutely hoping you were going to ask about that because, yes, it is absolutely Terpica, like Replica or Seneca. I've always said it that way. But one of the main reasons why we really encourage people to say it that way is that uh, when it was brought forth in Britain, some of the pronunciations of the word when they would say terpeca, were, uh, I got some feedback that it was a little, it was a little bit... phallic. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to make sure that we have a pronunciation that works in all dialects, it is definitely terpeca. <laughs> That's how I say it. So I, I agree that is indeed the correct pronunciation. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we're going to get to terpeca later because we have a lot of conversation to have there. But you have a pretty impressive history that essentially predates Terpica. So I want to explore that and also go over some of the origins. Talk about some topics that I think you're well positioned to discuss that a lot of our other guests haven't been. 
Let's start with the thing that you were initially known for, which are puzzle hunts. How did you find your way into the puzzling world? First, I want to say a little bit that I think that the puzzle hunt name has morphed over the years a little bit. I think nowadays when people say puzzle hunt, they're thinking more of these online hunts that people do. But when I started, which was back in 2001, was my very first puzzle hunt. Puzzle hunts were all in the real world, out running around and doing stuff. So my history starts in 2000 when I was a grad student at Stanford and I read this article in the school newspaper that said, here's 101 things that you should do before you graduate. And one of them was this thing called The Game. And The Game is this overnight adventure that goes anywhere from 24 to 48 hours. You rent a van and your teams of like about six and you solve a puzzle. The puzzle will solve to something that tells you where to go. And then you go to that location, you go around and these games are super elaborate. They usually take upwards of a year, sometimes more to create, and they're super well-themed and they have actors and it's super immersive. The very first one we did was called the 420 game. It was on 420. That wasn't the entire theme of the game. It was actually based on the matrix. And so this was the first one I learned about after I had read that article. And because these are limited runs, they run them on one weekend and there's a lot of people that want to do them. They have very competitive application processes. A lot of times you'll have to create a video or you'll have to do some other things and you'll probably have to solve some puzzles. It's a massive application. It takes a lot of time because ultimately not everybody that wants to play is going to be able to do it. And it only happens once. So if you miss it, you miss it. Wow. You had to prove that you were worthy to play this game. Absolutely. <laughs> and were there entrance fees also? Yes, there are entrance fees, but they're very modest because these are all community driven events. And so the whole community is based on like you're creating this event for other people in the community. And then there is some expectation that eventually you would then create one and give back. This is sort of born out of the early hacker ethos. Yeah, basically. And so even though there were fees, those fees were only to cover costs. So nobody's ever charging like, you know, this is not a business. <laughs> it would be like, I don't know, $200 for the team for the whole weekend, which was crazy when you consider all this, all the stuff they would do. So yeah, so we signed up for our first game. This is back in 2001. And we get in, we're super excited. And the very first thing that happens is we said, okay, show up with your entire team at this park in San Francisco at four o'clock on Friday of this coming week. And so we go out there and we go to the bench that they told us to sit on. We're sitting on this bench. And then all of a sudden, while we're sitting there kind of wondering what's supposed to happen, some guy in a FedEx suit, like full costume comes running up to us from like, we didn't even see where he's going. And he hands us this little package and he says, this is for you. And as soon as he hands it, it starts ringing. And we're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and so we open up the package and there's a cell phone in it that's ringing and we pick it up and they say, okay, come down to the corner of this street and this street and we'll be there to pick you up. And we run down there and hop in the car and we get our first sort of debrief. And so it was just the most amazing experience to start off our gaming world. <laughs> Wow. So, I mean, and this is in 2000. So this predates escape rooms, probably a lot of even like early immersive theater that did stuff like this. I was doing raves where you'd have to go to a record store <laughs> and get handed a little flyer with a phone number and you'd have to call that number. And then that would number would direct you to, to go to another location. <laughs> Some similar things, but nothing quite like that. Yeah. You know, if we fast forward to today, these aren't really happening anymore. But throughout the 
2000s. There was one on the Goonies game. There was a Harry Potter one where we took a train. We basically were told to show up at the train station. We didn't know where it was going. We all had to board the train, still not knowing where it was going. It took us and they told us when to get off. It was very magical. Now, were the type of puzzles that they did, were they like pen and paper style puzzles? Were they the type of puzzles that you see in like escape rooms now? They were much harder than typical escape room puzzles. So I would say sometimes were pen and paper puzzles. But I think that if it was truly on paper, it was frowned on. They tried to make them a little bit more environmental or like three dimensional, make them integrate with the world. But yeah, typical puzzle in those would they'd shoot for like, I think, an hour solve time per puzzle. And why do you think that they petered out? Well, for one, I think the way that it worked where it was a fairly small community that were all running them and it was so much work, I think a lot of people got tired. <laughs> there were a handful of creators that I think took on the lion's share of the work and ran more games than their share. And then there were a lot of people that played a lot and didn't give back as much. So that was part of it. And then I think I noticed that they really started to peter out right around when escape rooms were picking up. And I think that that's not by accident. I think that with escape rooms, it tickled that desire there for that kind of an experience, but did it in such a way where you didn't have to work for a year to get it. You could just go out and do it and get a little bite-sized elements of it. You didn't have to apply for it. It actually has a business model that can support it. It's ongoing. There's some upsides. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot easier to talk your friends and family into joining you for a one-hour adventure than getting everyone to dedicate 48 hours of their life <laughs> to a puzzle hunt. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of dedicating 48 hours, come to Recon. It's in Los Angeles. Tickets are on sale now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, some of these games actually have direct ties to the escape room industry. So one of the games in 2008 was actually Ghost Patrol. And you may know the Ghost Patrol room that's in Emeryville, California. That is actually from the same universe as the game that they ran, which is pretty cool. I'm finally playing it next week. This is Ghost Patrol at Trivium in yes. Emeryville. Yeah, up in Northern California. It's a great game. I loved it so much. And I do remember hearing that the founders all came from the puzzle hunt world. <laughs> yeah. Palace Games also, one of their main designers is Brent Holman, who also runs a company called Shinteki. He is one of the OGs of the game world. He ran a ton of games back in the 90s and was one of the main contributors to that community for a long time. Shinteki, which still exists today, runs a lot of corporate hunts and treasure hunts all over the world. And also Brent happens to be my partner in Cluekeeper. So I know him pretty well. <laughs> For me, I got introduced to puzzle hunts after this switch had happened and puzzle hunts still kept their reputation for being couple day events with hard puzzles. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me like the level of um, construction and build quality and immersion was flattened and they became more about the puzzles. Is that an accurate description? I think that there are sort of different lineages. There's the lineage that sort of comes from what I consider more the conference room style puzzle hunts, which have always been much more about the puzzles. And then if you look at what I call the game lineage, those ones are actually... If you just filter out all the other kinds of puzzle hunts and look at those, part of the reason that I forgot to mention before that I think they died out is that they were actually getting more and more elaborate over time. And I think that the bar kept on raising over and over again, and that actually discouraged other people from even wanting to dip their toe in the water because it was like, we can't compete with this ridiculous game that, you know. Interesting. Yeah, the arms race. <laughs> mm -hmm. puzzle, yeah. Puzzle arms race. My first real puzzle hunt 
was Eric's Puzzle Party in Auburn, Alabama back in early 2017. Our mutual friend Rex Miller had invited us onto his team. And when I say us, I mean you as well. (laughs) He was deliberately putting together a dream team. At that point, you already had quite the reputation as a skilled and competitive puzzler. Our whole team had really that reputation for experience and skill. Except for me and Lisa, we had no idea what we were doing. I have a very vivid memory of feeling like a little leaguer who found himself playing on a baseball diamond with the New York Yankees. Well, you hit that very well because I didn't feel like you were not contributing at the level of the rest of us. Very early on, Lisa and I realized that we could contribute with logistics. There was a lot of driving around and retrieving things, and we were very good at that kind of stuff. But for us, I'll say thank you to you because in spite of the competitive environment and how incredibly competitive our team was, you went out of your way and explained each solve to Lisa and I. Each time a puzzle had solved, you broke it down for us. You explained what you were looking for, what clued you in, how that tied to the flavor text, and then how you went and used that information to get a solve. We built up our skill level so much faster because of you. And we ended up getting a few solves in the later and some of the more complex puzzles of that hunt. But I honestly believe it was because of you and like what felt like a masterclass in solving puzzle hunt puzzles on the spot. Wow. Well, that's very nice. I honestly had no idea you felt like that. We were trying very hard to cover up just how ill-prepared we felt going into that we had only ever done like one and a half dashes so we didn't know what was up and it was amazing to work with you and look at you now (laughs) (laughs) i will say also one of my all-time favorite puzzles came out of that hunt maybe we can talk about that in the patreon bonus show because i always love talking about this prank puzzle i know just the one you're talking about (laughs) So I know you said that puzzle hunts have mostly died out, but I know that some of them are still in existence. One of the most famous probably being the MIT mystery hunt. But if somebody wants to start dipping their toes into puzzle hunts, where do you recommend that they start? Let me just first be clear. I think that only the style that are sort of in the game do I feel like has died out. Puzzle hunts in the form of like, especially the online versions are perhaps thriving now at a level beyond that they've ever been. There is a resource called puzzlehuntcalendar.com, which you can visit, and that has all sorts of puzzle hunts that are upcoming. These are almost exclusively the type that you play online. And as I understand it, for the next couple months, most every weekend, there'll be some. Those do tend to be a little bit tougher, though. A great one to start with that I like a lot is called Panda Magazine or PNA Magazine. This is a magazine that you can subscribe to that comes out once every two months or so. And it has a set of puzzles with a meta puzzle. I don't know if folks are familiar with a meta puzzle. Basically, the idea is you solve a bunch of puzzles and you take the answers to those puzzles and then you solve a puzzle that uses those answers to get a final answer for the whole hunt. That's a pretty common structure for puzzle hunts. But every Panda magazine has a little mini hunt that does that. Uh, That's a great way to get started. If you want to try the In person variety, there is a hunt called Dash, which stands for different area, same hunt. This has been going on, I think, 
Dash 12 is going to be coming up in 2024. And this is a hunt that happens in a bunch of different cities all over the world on the same day. And they try to make it fairly entry level. And basically it's a, I don't know, maybe six to eight hour experience, something like that. And you can sign up in your local cities. They haven't actually put all the information out on this yet, but you can look at it at uh, playdash.org. And when it happens, Lisa and I will be playing in New York. I think um, the cryptics hunt Mm. is pretty fun, too. That feels pretty approachable to me. Absolutely. Or you could check out your local puzzle pint, more like pen and paper style puzzles. Absolutely. I completely endorse both of those. I should have mentioned them. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing escape rooms, haunts, and other immersive social outings. And Morty is now available for all to use on its fantastic website experience, iPhone app, and its new limited access Android beta. I believe in Morty so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. This fall, Morty has expanded to feature haunt attractions. If you're a Halloween or horror fan seeking thrills this fall, Morty has got you covered. This is Morty's biggest expansion since going international and its first time going beyond escape rooms. There'll be two separate tabs, one for haunts and one for escape rooms. One of the things that I love about what Morty has done here is that the new haunt experience is designed in such a way that if you love haunts, it can become an integral part of your Morty experience. And if you are an escape room purist, it'll be like haunts barely exist. It is a great way to discover spooky events near you. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. Now, the Puzzle Hunt calendar that you mentioned is hosted by Dan Egnor, which leads us beautifully into the next line of questioning. In October 2018, you, Dan Egnor, Anna Ulin, and Amanda Harris collectively set the first ever Escape Room Guinness World Record. Most escape rooms played in 24 hours. Your team set the record at 22 games during a marathon in Moscow, Russia. I'm curious to hear the backstory. What motivated this run? What's going on here? Well, it first started with, I think, Dan just coming up with this idea of, hey, we're all starting to want to travel to play escape rooms. And we've found out about some really cool games in different places. And I don't exactly know what made him suggest Moscow, but he's like, hey, let's go to Moscow. They've got a bunch of cool games there. And so I was like, all right, why not? (laughs) So we had the trip planned before the whole Guinness attempt. And as we were researching rooms in Moscow, we find that there's this company called Claustrophobia, which had, I don't know, something like 10 locations and like 60 different games all in Moscow. And they are open 24 hours. So if you want to book a game at 3.30 in the morning, sure, you can do that. And so I was thinking, we've always talked about like, you played 10 games in a day. That was pretty cool. And just over dinner, 
we were brainstorming and I was like, maybe we should see like, since we have this sort of rare opportunity where there's one company and they're open all night, maybe we can just play nonstop for 24 hours and see how many we can do. We kicked that around a little bit and then it motivated me to go check and see if there was any kind of Guinness World Record on that. And there wasn't. So I researched a bit more on how do you get a Guinness World Record in a category that doesn't exist yet? And I went through the whole process. You basically have to apply to them and say, hey, this is a record we think is worth having and why, and we'd like to do it. And it's actually a pretty simple application. And if they like your idea, they come back to you with a whole set of rules. Okay, here's your record and here's all the rules for you. And they obviously didn't really know a lot about escape rooms when they came up with the initial set of rules. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. was going to say, like, even with time, how do you consider something completed? And like, does it have to be a one hour escape room? Or, you know, what if it's a 10 minute escape room? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Buckets of gray area. Yeah. So their first draft of the rules came back and we read them over and we're like, OK, we need to help them with this. <laughs> so they did answer some of the questions. So they said that one of the things is that the rooms had to be at least 30 minutes long. So that was good. They said that it had to be a team of four, which fortunately, that's how many we were planning to do. So that worked out. One of the weird rules they had in the original version was that they said that we could play multiple rooms simultaneously if we wanted, where we could each break up. We could do like two people in each room playing separate rooms at the same time. And these would all count towards the total. So if we wanted to split and do four rooms solo all during the same hour, that'd be fine. That that sounds a little, little iffy. Yeah. They got that killed. Yeah. Yeah. No, we were not a fan of that rule. So we wrote back to them and say, can you please get rid of this rule? Because that's not really what any people in the escape room industry think of as like playing a bunch of games in the same day. That's not in the spirit of the experiences. Yeah. So they got rid of that one. I can't remember. There, there may have been a couple other things that they changed, but we ended up with one that seemed reasonable enough. Um, as far as how long you had to stay in the room, basically, if you finished the room, no matter how early you finished, you could leave. If you failed the room, you, of course, had to stay the entire time up to the failure, and it would still count towards the number that you played. But then, of course, you know, if you fail a room, it's taking you the maximum amount of time, so it's harder to play more rooms that way. Were there rules around the hint system? Like how many hints were you allowed to get hints? They didn't really say much about that, except that they basically said that it had to be whatever the company's normal policy was for hints. As far as claustrophobia, their policy was you could get as many hints as you want. I don't think that would have precluded us just asking for tons and tons of hints and getting out much more quickly. But we also kind of wanted to enjoy our time and we weren't really actually competing against anyone else trying to set the record at the same time. So we ended up playing it as we would normally play. And there were times when we asked for hints, but we were probably a little bit more hint friendly than normally, but not too much. And you also elected to play, I think it was two 90 minute games in the middle of this. There were a couple 75 minute games. And actually it wasn't that we were just trying to like say, hey, we're playing 75 minute rooms. It actually made sense if you looked at the logistics for us to play a 75 minute room. You had to move between locations. And so the time that you would have had to spend to get to a different game would have been far more than the 15 minutes. That's exactly right. I gotcha. Yeah. But I think there was only two. I think that the bigger challenge than the 75 minute rooms was that I want to say there were somewhere around eight games that were completely in Russian. And <laughs> that was a super challenge because only one of us, which was Anna, spoke Russian. And those were fun because there might be some audio 
that's like telling us everything we need to know about the room only in Russian. And three of us would just be sitting there staring at Anna and the audio would stop and we'd be like, what did it say? And she's like, don't worry, it's over there. And we just <laughs> go over there. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know that we got all the narrative in those Russian games, but <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So since I don't think very many of us will be visiting Moscow anytime in the near future. What were some of the more interesting trends or experiences that you encountered there? Because I know that there were a couple of, shall I say, outlandish experiences. Yeah. So one of the games that really stood out to me was a game that was called Sacrum Labyrinth. And this was a giant labyrinth game that was in an old burned out warehouse out in the middle of the sort of industrial district of Moscow, which felt really strange. And we had to go through this gate where they didn't speak English and it felt very military and scary to get through. And we eventually found our way back and get into this game. And we had to like go up through some floors in this old burned out building to get to them on the third floor. But the second floor was like all destroyed and it looked like it was going to fall through. And it was like, what are we doing in this place? You're like, these sets are fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I feel like I'm legitimately in danger. (laughs) No, absolutely. Yeah, feeling legitimate danger was actually a a through line on the Moscow games too. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) so this game had what a few games had in that they had several different modes you could choose of play. And the modes were regular, hard, and hard with pain. (laughs) And basically, this is a horror game, mind you. But if you choose hard with pain, that basically means that they can, like, attack you. This is so Russian. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And this was a common thing. Like, there were a handful of games where those were the standard options across a lot of the rooms. And so I think this was the first one we played where we were, like, presented with that. And I was like, okay, can you demonstrate on Dan what the heart of pain feels like? <laughs> Show me on the ignore how you plan to touch me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they like twisted his arm a little bit and I'm like, all right, we'll do it. And so we tried. Ho- <laughs> yeah, I don't think Amanda loved it. Uh, I've played a lot of games with Amanda Harris. That does not sound like her idea of a good time. Wait, so how extreme did it get then? Because you guys did opt to play on the pain mode. Yeah. So it was this crazy labyrinth. And basically what would happen is that there were all these monsters running through the labyrinth. And if you would get caught in a corner, which you could because it was legitimately huge and you could easily get lost in there. And I did sometimes for 10 minutes at a time, which is a long time when you're lost in a maze. The monster would come up to you and basically like grab you and squeeze you. And to me, it felt a little bit like tickle torture. To other people, it felt less positive than that. <laughs> they just grab you and wrestle around with you for a little bit. And then after about 10 seconds, they would stop and give up, run away. And usually when they did that, they would actually help you back onto a path that would help you find where you're going. Yeah, it was a different and experience. this happens <laughs> when you were caught out alone. I'm just yeah. feeling like the closest I came to that was probably playing Stay in the Dark in the Netherlands. And I could not even imagine being separated from my friends, let alone being grabbed and manhandled. (laughs) Okay, well, that certainly sounds like some memorable and unusual experience.
Buzzshot is escape room software powering business growth, player marketing, and improving the customer experience. They offer an assortment of pre and post game features, including robust waiver management, branded team photos, and streamlined review management for Yelp, TripAdvisor, Google Reviews, and Morty. Buzzshot now has integration with Repod sponsor Cogs for all of your technology needs. If you were at this year's virtual recon, you might have heard David and Lisa's final talk, which really emphasized how important it is for players to leave reviews for escape room companies they love on places like TripAdvisor or Morty or Google. And what I love about Buzzshot is it makes it so easy and accessible for your customers to leave reviews for you. This is how you grow your business. This is how you let everyone else know how amazing your games are. PG, you know that I agree with you. And I love that Buzzshot makes it so easy to kind of pull players back after the game has finished and remind them that they love this experience and that they do want to tell the world about it. So if you are getting one of those emails from an escape room company, there's a decent chance it just came from Buzzshot. And remember, you should click that. You should support the companies in this industry because that is the way that they thrive and we get to keep enjoying. Streamline your marketing and grow your escape room business. Repod listeners get a free trial and 20% off your first three months. Visit buzzshot.com slash repod, that's R-E-P-O-D, to learn more. Link and details in the show notes. Let's move on to the Terpicas. For those who aren't familiar with Terpicas, what is it? The Terpicas are the top escape rooms project, and the ECA stands for Enthusiast Choice Awards. And basically, the goal of this project is to utilize the resources of all of the most experienced escape room players in the world to help figure out where are the best games in the world and create some awards that we give out once a year for now the top 100 rooms in the world. Yeah, and it is an involved process with the voting. It was a lot of work, but I was actually really impressed with how much you vet the people who actually vote on these. Well, thanks. One of the main motivations was that before these existed, I was a little unhappy with the state of how people were doing sort of group polling to figure out what are the best rooms in the world. And so the idea here was to start from the ground up and how do you design a system that replicates the idea that when you want to find out where the best rooms are, you want to ask your most experienced friends that have played a lot of rooms. Those are the ones you're going to trust the most. And furthermore, like people have played different sets of games. How do you compare between somebody that's only played in their market and somebody else that's only played in their market? And they're both saying, oh, we have the best games. The whole system was built on the idea that we have to make sure that the people that are contributing are actually these people that we trust and have the experience. And we need to come up with some system to compare across all these sort of different sets of games that people have played. And so all of that was sort of the idea of how do we make this work? and of course, that doesn't work unless we look very closely at each person that applies and make sure they are who they say they are and that they have the experience that they claim to have. That was how it all got started. 
Yeah. So I would say if you're listening to this podcast, you were probably in this category of people that we want voting. And I know it may seem really daunting because it is quite an involved application process, but your voice matters. And I just really think the more experienced players we have voting in this, the better and more realistic the list will be. Yes. Thanks, PG. That is absolutely true. If you've played 100 or more and you have opinions, which I know you do. Escape room players have no opinions ever. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're unhappy with the results and you're not contributing, then your voice needs to be in there. And even though we do have quite a few, I think we're over a thousand contributors each year. That's still a pretty low number. And any person that comes in and ranks games is going to have an impact on the result. Do you know what's the average number of games that Terpica voters have played? I don't know off the top of my head. I want to say it's probably 300 plus. That's my count. I'm in like 330s. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Average is probably going to run high. Median is probably going to, I'm guessing, run closer to like the 150 to 250 range. Yeah, maybe. Because the average is pulled up by some of us crazy people. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So I do want to say before we dive deeper into this conversation, Lisa and I have been on the Terpica board since Rich founded the board, which I think was the year after the project. I think it was second year. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been heavily involved in Terpica from very early on. There's no money going on here at all, but... I just want to make it clear as we get into the conversation that I'm definitely more involved in this than most people. I do want to underscore too: everyone involved in Terpica, no one is paid. Everything is volunteer. And that part is important to me because I want it to be clear that this is really just a bunch of enthusiasts that care about this industry and want to help each other and help the community, all doing it without any sort of financial motivation or hidden agenda in that regard. Yeah, no, we're all definitely just volunteering our time to argue with each other over the nuance Mm -hmm. of how to best serve this project. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the different ways that you'd like to see the Terpica list used? That's a great question. I don't really prescribe how people want to use it. I can tell you how I use it, which is very useful, which is planning trips. I think a lot of people that In order to play hundreds of escape rooms, you do have to travel a little bit in most cases. And what I do personally is I'll look at the list and see where the hotspots are. And that's often how I will pick an escape room destination. And honestly, that's how we plan most of our travel these days. That's how I use it. Yeah, there's a few ways that I see people use it. One is to just make sure that you've played the games that are on the list in the area that you live Beyond that, it's really useful for finding high density of high quality games in a particular region. The top 100 on the list get the award. But I would say in general, it varies from year to year. But the amount of companies that are on that list and are still really amazing, it can get pretty deep into it. So I always advise people to don't just look at the top 100. I'll give you a frame of reference here. For Terpica 2022, Spellbound from 13th Gate is 187. The Orphanage from Dark Park is 190. Salute to Medicina Institute, which is one of my personal favorite games, came in at 191. There are a lot of games. You can go really deep on the list. Hex Room from Crossroads Escape Rooms is at 210. 
these need to be higher. Yeah, <laughs> it's just there's so opinion. many, and that's the thing. So yeah, you can start to go pretty deep. Ghostlight from Mystic in Brooklyn, New York. That's easily one of the top four escape rooms in New York City. That came in at two sixty one. So there are a lot of games you can go deep into this, and you're still finding really good games. So yeah, just don't disregard the list in general. Yeah, and also keep in mind that anything that makes it to the final round means that there was, I think in last year, it means that there were five different people who basically said, this is one of my all-time favorite games. And if you have five different people that have played 200 plus games that are all saying, this is one of my favorite games, every single one on that list is going to be solid in some way. Yeah. Another thing I'll just point out from 2022, the 100th game on the list was Ghost Hunter, Ernie Hudson, and the Zoo of Death from Skurilum in Hamburg, Germany. The first year of Terpica, I believe that game was number nine or 10 on the list in the world. So like the level of competitiveness that is at play here is very high. Absolutely. I want to try something a little different. Room Escape artist, writer Richard Burns, who is arguably the biggest fan of Terpica, he and I were chatting about the Terpica Award and created a list of what we're calling side effects of Terpica that we're curious to hear your reaction to. Most of these are positive. One or two of them might be a little bit debatable. Let's take it from the first one. Besides recognizing top escape rooms, Terpica has created its own international sense of community that was not there before 2018. I can chat with other players from England, France, the Netherlands, Germany, Spain, Greece, Israel, and so forth. And we'll have these games in common, or at least enough of them. We can easily talk about specific games, companies, regional styles, because we have this list to refer to. Terpica is the icebreaker for escape room fans around the world. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, that is not obviously something that was the goal of the project, but it really makes me feel a lot of pride and happiness that it has become something like that. I know that when I travel, it does seem like I have automatic friends in all these different countries that I've never met before. And we often will have meetups in these different countries. And it is really, I don't know that it's entirely Terpica that's done this. Certainly you're reviewing games all over the world too. And there's a lot of other sources of that, but it is cool to be part of a community that I think is internationally connected like this. I think also because Terpica is used internationally, right? So there's the one, I don't want to call it a standard, but it's not like there's every country has their own version of Terpica, right? Usually this is the one list that everyone refers to. So I think in that sense, it does globalize it a little bit. So when I talk to enthusiasts from other countries, we're all referring to the same list, right? It's not like they have their own Mm -hmm. and we have our own version. So the second one says, Terpica is responsible for probably millions of dollars spent on international travel, which I have definitely contributed (laughs) to this millions of dollars spent. And people have visited places that they otherwise wouldn't have. That's cool. And actually, this is the one where I feel a tremendous amount of pressure to make sure that everything is done properly and the results make sense. Because... When people are choosing to spend their money on this, 
there's no sort of bigger burden on me to make sure that they're not going to go. I mean, you know, sometimes people do go to places and get disappointed. Like I did have somebody recently go to Greece and say, what the heck? I thought this was supposed to be great. These rooms were totally not that great. And I talked with them some more. And I think what it turned out to is that they were really into puzzle games and really hated horror games. And Oh, wrong place, buddy. I know, yeah. right? So Maybe do a little bit yeah. more research than looking at the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But those are the kind of things like I don't want people to make their decisions and then be disappointed. So the best I can do is I want to make sure that I am representing how people are voting and then handling that data as, with as much care as possible to make sure that it reflects the true sentiment. The next one is Terpica is helping people realize that quality is rarely related to location, game theme, company size, or advertising power. It is encouraging players to try games and genres that they normally would avoid. Yeah, horror, obviously. <laughs> yeah, we'll, um, we're going to get to the, We'll get back yeah. to horror later. <laughs> I don't know what more to say on that one. I'll give a possibly controversial take. I'd say for some people, definitely controversial. The English language requirement has created a lingua franca that benefits not only native English speakers, but also non-native speakers. Anyone who speaks English can confidently book games from the Terpica list. And that is really important in the world of international travel. So there's a lot there, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, you said that Terpica has created this. My feeling was that this was how it was and that Terpica is more a reflection of the reality that when people travel, they play in English. I agree. I think that it has reinforced it is what it has done. Sure. It has definitely pushed that broader. I agree with that. Um, but that was the, where the trend line had been heading since international escape room travel started to become a thing. Yeah. And the last one says that Terpica has, at least in some circles, created an arms race to build bigger, more complex, and more performative games. I think that's true. Although I do think there is no guarantee. In fact, some may even say that there's an anti-correlation between building a Terpica winner and building a room that's going to maximize your profit. Um, <laughs> I would say that that's true. And I think that is one of the questions and one of the philosophical things that I personally have been grappling with Terpica is looking at that question, going back to the puzzle hunt question is at what point is too much? At what point does the business model not sustain the level of creative effort? It's also going on in the video game world. How much budget is too much budget? And I don't have a good answer for that because I'm in a weird spot where as a player, I'm like, give me all the stuff. Give me all the cool things. Give me all the tech and all of the actors and all the square footage. Mm -hmm. And we will absolutely reward that as reviewers. We at least from a room escape artist standpoint, we try very hard to make sure we draw a lot of attention to really wonderful, interesting, low budget games as well. And Terpica has no real mechanism that I could even imagine baking in to do that. Yeah. To some extent, I think the movies that make the most money are not the ones that win the Oscars necessarily. And there was also the article that Haley from Strangebird wrote about what's motivating the creators and whether it's for money or whether it's for them or whether it's for the audience. And I think that one nice thing about this is that for those who are motivated by doing something for their audience, this gives them a tangible 
reward for that kind of an approach. Whereas maybe they aren't going to get the money, but for some creators, this might be more valuable than that. I definitely agree with that. I still, I struggle with five plus year development cycles for a single escape room. That is a thing that I personally have a really hard time imagining how that is healthy for anyone involved. Got to ship it at some point. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) as somebody who continues to go and produce events that have a lot of moving parts, but there's a deadline that if the work isn't done by that point, then that work isn't getting done. I feel like my perspective is definitely different than that of the escape room creator who doesn't have as fixed a deadline, but it does start to make me nervous. And there's a growing list of games that I have been waiting five plus years to play that I don't feel like it is an isolated thing. Like I'm not calling out any one company here. This is a thing that I'm excited to play these games, but I'm also nervous about the implications of really long development cycles. Yeah. So one of the questions that keeps cropping up in the community revolves around the abundance of horror experiences topping the Terpica list. What is your current thinking on this? I've been thinking a lot about this one. Oh, I know you have. Yes. (laughs) So there's a lot. I would say that in one perspective, I think that rooms that tend to do well in the Terpicas are rooms that will evoke some kind of strong emotion. And I think that horror games will evoke fear. And I feel like fear is one of the strongest emotions you can feel. It's also one of the easier ones to evoke. And I think that there is something there as to why that happens and why they end up doing well. I agree with that. There is also potentially some bias, and there's something that that we're looking into in that someone who is not at all willing to play a horror game and never will, won't be able to rank these games. And then basically anybody else that is willing to play it will be able to rank it. And the people that love horror will be playing them at a higher rate than the other ones. So it could be that there is some sampling bias there that we're getting the boost from the horror lovers, but we're not getting the penalty from the horror avoiders. And this is actually something that we're going to be actively looking at this year. In the voting process, we're going to be capturing people's self-described opinion of where they stand on how much they like horror. And we're going to try to analyze what kind of an effect that has on the results and see how strong it is. One of the things we've also seen is that there are on occasion people that are horror avoiders, but then they play one of these top rooms that is up at the top of the list and they go like, okay, even though that's not my cup of tea, I see why it's in the top 10. And they end up actually, in some cases, ranking it very high themselves. We will have to see. This was Sarah Dodd. Sarah is one of the most experienced escape room players in the world. She is on the Terpica board. And when she had first joined the board, the woman vehemently hated horror. And she has come around to really appreciating it by way of starting to play these really high-end horror games and realizing that there was something in it for her. Oh, yeah. I was anti-horror before I played my first scary escape room. And I was like, this was amazing. And now some of my favorite ones are the ones that get the adrenaline pumping and the thrill. And I still I'm not a huge fan of haunts and horrors, but I'm more willing to go now that I've started doing scary escape rooms. On one of your other podcasts where you were basically saying that actually makes you feel something. And that's exactly how I feel. Yeah. What I can say from my perspective as a player and even just as someone who is advising Terpica, I can comfortably say that 
these games that are topping the list, at least the ones that I have played, are really damn great. They're phenomenal games. Are they a little bit higher? Is there some flux into what the ordering should be? Maybe. I personally have never felt like the ordering of Terpica was handed down from God. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of small variables that could shuffle the order. But do the Lock Hill games belong ranked high on Terpica? Yeah. Do some of the Dark Park games? Yeah, they, they belong there. So where can people go if they want to become a nominator or voter on Terpica? So you can go to voters.terpica.com. Terpica is T-E-R-P-E-C-A. And there is a link where you can just sign up to apply and fill out the form and send it in. You're going to have to provide evidence of your experience and who you are. And if you provide that and it all makes sense, then you'll be in for this year. We'll have links in the show notes. In addition to escape rooms and puzzles, you have a deep love of sports. Help me understand the magic of your annual pilgrimage to Chicago to see the Bears play. Yes. So I am a huge sports fan. I have been a fan of the Chicago Bears since I was 10 years old back in the 80s when they were doing the Super Bowl shuffle and the Bears. Yeah, those ones. I've been a huge fan ever since. And 10 or 15 years ago, I went to a game in Chicago and it was magical and everything I hoped it would be. And since then, I've been trying to get back as much as possible. And one thing that I actually did about five years ago is I actually became a season ticket holder for the Chicago Bears. And it's semi an investment because basically I buy the tickets each year and I pick the game I want to go to and then sell all the tickets for all the other games. So far, I have had 100% success in making enough profit on the tickets I sell to pay for the entire trip. So it's wow, pretty cool. Wow, what a racket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. I heard a rumor from Dan Egnor that you and your wife, Kiki, have gamified grocery shopping. Is this true? And how does it work? Yes. I, I this love is hilarious. gamifying everything. <laughs> There is a couple different ways. We, we don't do this often, but every once in a while. So this only happened once, but then there's another one that's happened a few times. So the one time, I don't know why, but we went to the grocery store and I grabbed one of those little grabber tools that you pull the trigger on the end and it grabs the arm closes. Yes. And basically we made it, we made a game for that one was that we couldn't get anything unless I could grab it with the grabber and put it into the cart. <laughs> so we went around the entire grocery store and everything we got, she would point at and I would grab it with the grabber and put it in the cart. It was especially <laughs> funny when we were going down an aisle and another lady who was shopping there was like, excuse me, sir, can you grab this thing off the top shelf for me? <laughs> so like, I used my grabber tool to <laughs> grab her thing. <laughs> You guys should do that in escape rooms. <laughs> you gotta give yourselves a handicap from now on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. In the bonus show, we're going to talk about alternative play modes that I have been dreaming up for escape rooms. I have some challenges for you people. <laughs> okay. Nice. More on that in the bonus show. Let me tell you very quickly the other one. You can use it if you want. The other gamified thing that we've done in the grocery store, and we've actually done this a few times, which is... I get to push the cart and she can put the groceries in, but I'm going to take one trip through the entire store at a constant rate. And 
if she wants anything in that aisle, she's got to put it in the cart because when I get through all the aisles and get there. <laughs> so if she's ahead, she'll run a couple aisles ahead so that when I get there, she has time to decide. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple League of Legends modes that plays exactly like that. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, we've done that one a few times. <laughs> okay, last question for you, Rich. You're going to Wrocław, Poland to compete in the ER Champ competition. Past sponsor of Repod, by the way, with your team, United Discord. Who's on the team? What are you doing to prepare? All right. Our team consists of Dan Egnor, who's been mentioned several times on this podcast already. Weiwa Huang, who is a, I think, three or four time individual world puzzle champion. Are these jigsaw puzzles or? No. So this is for the world puzzle championship, which is basically like really tough logic puzzles. Think of like Sudoku or other like Nickley style puzzles, if you're familiar with that. I'm all nodding, but I, but no, I, I'm not familiar with it. It's basically like if you think of Sudoku or Ken Ken or any of these sort of like grid-based logic puzzles where there's right. a bunch of rules. Yeah. And so that's like the hardcore puzzle championship of the world is the WPC World Puzzle Championship. Yeah, he's legit. The rest of us carry his water <laughs> um, <laughs> who's the last person um, on the team and the last one is augie mike augustine ah love augie yes augie who tr- it's like a professional treasure hunter <laughs> yes the world yes. doing treasure hunts <laughs> and interestingly so i played with Weiwa in the original red bull escape uh, room championship in 2017 and then i played on a different team with augie in the 2019 red bull championship and then, of course, Dan was on the world record team. So this is pulling a little bit from each of those experiences. So hopefully we've got a good shot. That's nifty. That's a mighty team. That's <laughs> some of the most powerful puzzlers that I have ever met. And that's saying something. Well, it's mostly Wei Wan and us. But thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So what is the best way for people to follow your work or connect with you? As far as Terpica, I'd say Terpica.com is the best place to find out more about that. Our social media links are there. Cluekeeper, which we didn't talk too much about, but basically that is a platform for creating and running various types of puzzle hunts, mostly outdoor style. There's like augmented reality features and stuff like that. If you're in the market for building that kind of content, you can visit Cluekeeper.com. Yeah, that's probably the two most relevant places that you will find out about my stuff. Okay, we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Rich, thank you so much for joining us. I have to be honest with you, you've just alluded to a number of the topics that were left on the cutting room floor because I was up till like six o'clock in the morning working and reworking my questions today for you because I could not figure out which topics were the most important. But (laughs) you have done so many interesting and fun things in the community and made so many different things that have helped bring all of us together in some remarkable ways. So thank you for joining us, but also thank you for everything that you bring to the global escape room and puzzle community. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be a part of this great community. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Teresa Piazza with support by Lisa Spira and Richard Burns. We're edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. Music by Ryan Elder, logo by Janine Proct, and All of this is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. 
you've made it to the end of the episode. I'm guessing that you had a good time because otherwise you would have bailed. How about you go and take that good time straight over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Help other people find what we're doing. It really helps us out. And think about who you just helped out by helping them find a podcast that they're really going to enjoy. Go do it. Do it now. Thank you. Well, folks, it is that time. You know exactly the one I'm talking about. It's the one where the desperate content creator tells you, please, please join our Patreon, please. I know you hear it from everybody, but it means so much to us. The amount of time and energy and money that we put into producing shows like this to the degree that we produce them and all of the other things that we're doing, it just takes a lot. And our patrons, every single one of them matters at every single level. So if you have the money available and it's not gonna be a hardship for you, please consider backing us on Patreon. And if it is gonna be a hardship, please don't. And backing us at the $5 level gets you access to the RIA Discord, and it also gets you our bonus after show. The show goes on for like another 40 to 50 minutes usually. A lot of times we have the guests joining us. I mean, that's, that's longer than that cup of coffee will last you. At the $15 level, you also get access to our Spoilers Club. Here, we take deep dives into iconic, well-known escape rooms, and we're joined by the creators who come in and gives us exclusive behind-the-scenes, director's cut-style commentary. This is some of my favorite content to produce because I love talking about escape rooms in full. You can learn more at patreon.com slash roomescapeartist link and details in the show notes we'd like to thank our highest level patrons panic room escapism olivier escape jonathan driscoll breakout games derek tam joshua rosenfeld byron delmonico keystone escape games scott olson paula swan rex miller and the ministry of peculiarities thank you for your ongoing support in 2013, I played in a overnight game called the 75th Annual Famine Game, which was based on the Hunger Games in Washington, D.C. And it was an amazing game with all sorts of callbacks to the Hunger Games series. One puzzle that we did was called the Jabberjays puzzle. And the Jabberjays are these birds that mimic human voices. And there was a puzzle in which we heard the Jabberjays mimicking all these voices and they were people that sounded like they were in trouble and they needed our help. And so we decoded all these voices and solved the puzzle to move on and it was fun enough. And a little bit later in the hunt, we were around the creators of the hunt and they were like, did you guys love the Jabberjays puzzle? And we're like, yeah, it was fine. But what we didn't notice was that the people that were actually speaking in the Jabberjays puzzle were my wife and other members of our teams, like significant others. And we completely missed that because we <laughs> were so intent on solving the puzzle. And it was pretty cool. What they had done was taken our emergency contact information from when we applied and they'd contacted them without telling us. And they had them all record these voices of saying like, help, I'm in trouble and all these, <laughs> and <laughs> none of us recognized. <laughs> We're just like, we got a game to get through, leave them. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out that almost none of the teams recognized their significant others. 